Welcome today to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. This podcast was created after I this podcast was created after I met the doctors that made the drug that would eventually go on to save my life. Before that point, I was just in and out of the ICU and ER. All of that kind of led into me not being able to, you know, see a lot of mentorship or get a lot of advice on what I should be doing in life. I know a lot of you out there are, you know, working huge, long days and you don't have the time to, you know, be current with the, the latest news and science or any of these industries we'll be talking with the experts on or getting advice on how to get into those industries yourself. Each of these episodes, if I'm doing my job right, you're going to get some strategies, some ideas on how to navigate into the careers that they have, you know, how to test yourself to see if they're doing what you want to be doing, see the latest news and interesting things that they're working on, and get a great sense of the new technologies and stuff that exists, all while in a really fun conversational format. Today we are joined with Elizabeth Marshall Thomas. She is an American author, publishing fiction and nonfiction books, articles on animal behavior, Paleolithic life, and King Bushman of the Kalahari Desert. So that's kind of like the brief of it, but basically many years ago in the 50s, her and her family went into went into a number of places in South America and actually met uh, what at the time was called Bushmen, but are now called, respectively called the San. She met indigenous people and so in, and wrote many books about what her experiences were like. And so in this episode, we get into what were those experiences? What was it like going into a place where you had to learn a language that most people on the outside did not know? what she has gained from that experience, some challenges on people who want to get into nature and want to get more in tune with nature. We have some fun challenges on the end. And she also has a number of books that you can like kind of pick up. Honestly, I love this conversation. I got to sit back and listen to someone tell amazing stories about stuff that I've never experienced. So let's get into this and start learning about Elizabeth Thomas. Also, her best-selling book is The Hidden Life of Dogs. She also, if you check her out in the show notes, has a wiki page so you can see the rest of her work as well. I originally came to learn about you from Sai, who was on the podcast, I mean, almost like six months ago. It's been a while. I wanted to hear more about how you wrote a book and what brought you to writing. Like, how did you know that that was something you wanted to do? Well, I've been writing since I was a kid, and I guess I was pretty good at it. Um, One of my early memories is being called to the, I was in grade school, maybe sixth or seventh grade. And I was called to the principal's office. And to my surprise, my mother was there. She had been called to the principal's office. And the principal asked me uh, some questions, a lot of questions, and I answered them. And I had no idea what, what I was there for or what we were doing. And later it turned out that she thought I had, I had written a, a composition. And it was too good for seventh grade, so she thought I had plagiarized it. And uh, that was my introduction to <laughs> to writing. <laughs> um, it's a weird and, compliment. W- w- yeah, a weird compliment. Later, I uh, I I won a uh, I won a prize, the uh, Mademoiselle College Fiction Contest, and publishers keep an eye on that. I won with a short story. And publishers keep an eye on that. And the publisher, Knopf, asked me to write a book. And I said, okay. And I, <clears throat> excuse me, I wrote a book called The Harmless People. And it was about 
uh, people known as the San, formerly known as Bushmen, because we, my family, had gone to a part of Southern Africa that at the time, about 120,000 square miles in, in, in uh, what is now Namibia and what is now Botswana and in, in uh, some in Angola, Southern Angola. And it was um, unexplored by, that means by white people. Okay, and um, the 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 people we we went into the interior there. My dad put together an expedition, and we went in, and we met uh, San people who were who were pre-contact. They had no connection whatever to the to the rest of the of the world. And their later uh, archaeological work was done, and an encampment was found. An encampment in in use that was occupied had been occupied continuously for eighty five thousand years, and another one for thirty five thousand years. So the way of life we saw was the way of our ancestors. The San were our ancestors genetically. We all descend from from them, and their their successful culture. Last, the the material culture that was found by these excavations was essentially unchanged, and there are only so many ways you can live as a hunter gatherer, and the the people the people knew. Speaking of unexplored, the people knew every every inch of that 125,000 miles, and uh, and I'll tell some more about the things they knew uh, in a minute. But um, the the uh, they welcomed us. They were very nice to us. They'd heard about white people, um, not nothing good. Their they their information. They were connected to each group. They lived in small, fairly small groups, perhaps thirty people, maybe somewhere around there. Uh, and they all lived near sources of water. There was no surface water in that part of the world. In, in that 120,000 miles, there was no surface water, so they, 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 there were water holes. So every every group of sand lived by somewhere near a water hole, and uh, but they uh, they were in touch with each other. They would go and visit each other, and they would be and um, well. For example, my mother gave a gift of a certain kind of necklace to to all the women that we knew in the in the place where we spent the most time and a year later we well we came back maybe 9 months later and the 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 thing the gifts she had given had been given as gifts um to the far corners of the of the of that vast space well at as gifts can travel, so can information and information about how how bad the white people were had traveled. But they but they accepted us and they were they were very nice to us. And we my mother did an anthropological study of of them and I took a lot of notes and wrote a book. And uh, it was it was a life changing experience for me. Ever since then, I've seen everything through the eyes of the of the of the pre contact sand. That's incredible. So, 
it was yeah it was it was incredible to me <laughs> do you remember the first time that you met them when like oh, yes i yes we had met um when the farmer white farmers came to that part of the world they they just took land because it didn't quote belong to anybody i mean the sand didn't have you know formal ownership or anything they just lived there and the the farmers just took land and if there was a, a water hole on the land and which they the farmer would want and sand were living at the water hole they could choose between working for him or going to going away and perhaps they could go to relatives in the interior or or just be homeless we met a group of people who had been driven away and they they had no permanent water source they got their water um by they got their water by in in, a, in any quantity from the from the bodies of antelopes that they killed which they they were successful hunters and the body of an antelope yields a good deal of liquid and that that was one source of water for them another source was little little melons that grew called sama melons and they 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 are are give water but it's a very it's hard to live in a climate where it goes to 120 degrees in the shade dry heat but very hot without water but they had been driven from a from a place that a farmer took and they didn't have a choice the we met people we spent more time with people further further and different and this they were one language group called Tui, and we went to it we were with another language group called Zhukwasi and the the, the Zhukwasi had they had a very good waterfall and they let us share the water and we we lived we lived there we went about for quite a few months the first time the second time we went for a whole year the third time I was there for just a few months. I was there for the whole time our family stayed, but after that I went on and did did other things and uh, and uh, they they continued visiting the, the sand and uh, for for many years my brother, whose name was John Marshall, was uh, very helpful in in uh, in when when transition came and their way of life was vanishing he was very helpful to them in in the transition he helped them start farms uh, and also he the 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 new when the when the government changed from being a a, a sort of a branch of south africa with white people in charge when when namibia was got independence um, the 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 first one of the first laws they passed was that anybody could anybody could live anywhere they wanted. Well, the the area was surrounded by pastoral people, the Ambo people and um, band, various groups of Bantu-speaking people, and they all had cattle, and the cattle needed to be in where there was grazing, and where the sand lived in that in that in those parts. There was no overgrazing because the antelopes don't overgraze. I mean, the natural world you don't you don't get overgrazing like you do if you keep a herd of cattle or large number of cattle. And they they uh, they uh, 
they they wanted to live where the sand were living, where the, the grazing was good. And my brother got the one place, um, one place where people couldn't just go was the land occupied by, a, a part of that land occupied by the sand. The part is called Nyanyai, and it's about 60,000 square miles. And uh, um, that part was was just for the sand. And that was, he did he did a lot of things for, for those people. He also, uh, I mean, he wasn't, uh, he didn't believe in apartheid, and he was, he was friends, I mean, of course he was, just normal friends with people, but the people in the government noticed that and they wanted him to, they they wanted to revoke his visa. So they, eventually they did. They put up wanted signs in the, in the, in the main city, which is Windhoek. They put up wanted signs for him and he, he, he didn't even know that because he was way up in the north uh, with, with the sand. But he found out and uh, he, he got a sign, he, and, but they took his visa. So he couldn't go back for many years. And uh, uh, he, when he did go back, it's, it, this is said, I'm not positive that it's true, but it's said to be true. He came to, he, when he was going through customs and where you speak to the person who, who looks at your passport and everything, my brother showed him the wanted sign. And the guy said, you just go in, just go in. And he did. And before that, I had been, I had been um, in another part of, of that, of, of Namibia, by then Namibia, uh, doing a study of elephants. I was with Catherine Payne. She discovered infrasound in elephants. She, that was a great discovery. It was one of the big discoveries of the century, actually. No land animal was known to make infrasound. Now it's found that quite a few animals make infrasound, but she discovered it. And when she was working on the elephants, I was with her. And uh, um, but I decided that I would just go and visit. I would go and visit the, the sand we had known at this place called Gaucha. And uh, I I, ran, I had a pickup truck to use, and I just drove the pickup. And and I went to Windhoek. I went from Etosha to Windhoek. In Windhoek, I stayed in a hotel for the night before going north. And I don't know how this happened, but people knew I was there and they knew who I was. They knew I was my brother's sister. And the the, the entire kitchen staff, the cooks and the waiters and everybody, came out of, of the kitchen and they they applauded me and sang for me. And the only, the reason they did that is because I was his sister. I mean, it's like being a queen or something. You don't do anything to deserve being a queen. <laughs> you just are a queen because an accident of birth, and that that was that happened to me. And then I I drove north the next day, and as I would pass towns, news had spread, and people would come out of the towns to or come out to the road and and wave and cheer as I went by. And this was all because of him. Anyway, um, um, let's see where where was I? Back uh, to, to return to the to the old times when we were the, when I was there. Um, I saw a very interesting thing. That there were many very interesting. Things. Their knowledge of their 
of their environment was profound. I don't think a scientist today knows as much as they knew. I, I'm quite sure that, that that no one does. And I'll give a couple of examples in a minute. But um, uh, eventually a man came, a professor from Harvard came and did a little study of what the Bushmen, the Sam knew, what the information they had. And his conclusion was that, quote, they know almost as much as we do. Well, I mean, that is, is funny because they knew 10 times, 50 times more than we do about their, about their ecosystem. For example, they they hunted with they they hunted with poison arrows, and they had been doing so for a very long time. The poison is 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 completely deadly. If it gets into your bloodstream, there's nothing you can do. You're dead. It takes a long time to die, but you they can't say you can't be saved. And so they would they would go hunting. They would shoot an antelope. Then they would track it until they found it dead or dying or unable to go any further, and then they would spear it and kill it and cut it up and carry it home, and everybody would be very happy. The people loved to eat meat. And uh, that was the, that was that was how, how they, they did it. And the poison arrows are the, are, the, are the wonderful part. The arrow poison comes from the larva of a beetle and the parasites of that beetle, two kinds of larva. And the the there must have been there must be eighty maybe a hundred many 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 species of beetle in that part of the world, and this was one small beetle, less than an inch long, maybe three quarters of an inch, very inconspicuous, dark colored. They lived on the on the leaves of a cummer for a tree. And they sometimes it's pronounced camaphora, and uh, and they they the beetles lay their eggs on the leaves. They don't they don't have anything to do with people. They don't come and bother you or eat your food or do anything. You, you never see them unless you look up and look happen to see them. Okay, the larvae they lay their eggs on the leaves. The larvae hatch. They're tiny when they hatch. They crawl down the tree under the bark they go to the they go to the uh, they go down they, they go out the roots of the tree out through the roots into the sand the trees grow in very sandy soil well the whole Kalahari is very sandy soil but there nothing else grows around those trees that you would want to eat I mean no, there's no root there or vegetable growing there that you'd want to dig up there's no reason to dig there none but the people knew that these bug, these grubs were down in the sand. When the grub gets to the sand, it sticks down into the sand. It's about two feet deep or a little more, mm -hmm. maybe three feet deep. And it takes grains of sand and sticks them to it so it looks like a little round ball of sand. Well, there are other natural little round balls of sand. So which are the, which are the larvae? It's hard to decide. Mm -hmm. But the people, the people knew, and they they would find them. The poison, when it's the poison, it, 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 it takes it, it destroys the hemoglobin in your blood, and that takes time. And the the uh, what it, what 
So it, it would it take if okay. How do people know it was poison? Mm-hmm. That's that's the thing. And they they how they found out? I have no idea, because I mean it's very hard to imagine or to figure out some scenario where they'd find out if they were if they were if it somehow got into their bloodstream. Uh, it would it, it would take several days to to die. So how do you know that it was the that thing, that little grub that had the poison? How would you know? Another thing would be to, if you ate the poison. Well, you can eat. You can eat the people when an antelope was shot. There would be a, a when it was found dead. There would be a, a a dark area about where the around where the arrow went in. But people ate that. There would be poison in that in that area but the people ate that part of the out of part of the antelope without any problem so i'm not sure if you ate a grub would you if you unless you had an ulcer you you might be fine hmm. so how did they know how did they know that it was poison well they did and it's that kind of I mean, the the science of that is so profound it's really hard to imagine a, a tree where a tree where nothing much grows there, no reason to dig there. If you d- dug down, would you know what you were looking at? But a little ball of sand, well, you look at the ball of sand, and what is it? It's a grub. The most de- one of the most deadly poisons in the world. But how do you know that? Anyway, that is what it takes to. That's what it took for them to, to, uh, to. Uh, to survive there was this kind of knowledge, but they—I mean, eighty-five thousand years—that's that's a pretty stable culture. They had a very stable culture, and a very successful culture, much more successful than anything else that we've dreamed of since. So that was that was worth seeing. That was quite something. To know those people was quite something. Is quite something. It's all changed now. It's gone now, pretty much. Uh, you, you've been back and it, it's changed a lot? It's changed a lot. People don't live in the, in the kind of shelters they used to live in. They live in, in a, a sort of rendezvous, more like what the Bantu people use. And they're per, more permanent. I mean, they they people have said they wandered around on the felt in search of food and water. Somebody actually said that. Somebody wrote a book of uninformative book about them um but uh, they 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 knew where everything was um you know now i don't remember what i was started to talk about <laughs> for this question i was uh, asking how have things changed for them because you said it's like they oh, the, oh, things like, changed yes 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 well now people have jobs a lot of people have jobs various kinds and um people i'm sure people still hunt if and the, the gathering part uh, the men hunted and the women gathered but anybody could gather but only men could hunt and that's a, that's another story in itself why only men could hunt but um but they they were very good at it and uh the uh, yeah were, did you have to get trained on the language so you could listen and have yeah. to teach you, or uh, you didn't have a translator? Well, we, we we had we had uh, we had a wonderful interpreter, 
but also we tried to learn it. We tried to learn Zan. The language that we would have tried to learn is called Zhukwa. It's the name of the people. Hmm. And uh, so I, I, I did learn quite a bit. My brother was fluent. He spoke Zhukwa with an American accent. But he spoke very, he was very, very good at it. Do they have the same type of Native American way of transmitting knowledge, like a history through, I think, I don't know if it's through song, but they do, it's like an oral tradition? Well, sure, but uh, no, no, they weren't, they they weren't as into it or as attached to it as other people are. I mean, they, they where did people come from, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There were there were some stories about that, but it it kind of didn't matter. I mean, it wasn't one of the things that people were. And and why would you if you've been there for eighty five thousand years? Yeah, I mean, what's to know <laughs> that you've been there for eighty five thousand years, <clears throat> that you've always been there. The, the, if their founding mythology wasn't important, what what other things were like? It- well, if you live in the natural world as they did, and it completely in the natural world, I mean, we that was our background. That's our history. That's our prehistory. We did. Th- they gave rise to us. Our ancestors did this. Um, when you live in the natural world, you, you you pay attention to what's going on around you in a way that you don't when you live in a village or something else. And and uh, it's 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 just a very different way of living, and it's a different way of thinking about things. It's you you have to know what's going. And this is true of we were one of the mammals on the Af- a mid-sized mammal on the African savanna when we when when we lived as hunter-gatherers, and we have to do you have to do as the other mid-sized mammals do. I mean the very big ones don't have to worry. But the, the little bitty ones have to worry a great deal, and the mid-sized one have to have to be aware all the time, because the predators are bigger than than the mid-sized mammals, mm-hmm. which we were, which were us and others. Have you uh, read up the book *Sapiens* by chance? Oh, I think I did, but I can't remember it very well. Hmm. Well, the I think it's in that book where they talk about how. Like uh, we started getting more and more intelligent over the years, but yet they're like, even Uh though like we've had more or less our level of intelligence for hundreds of thousands of years, but that when we first got it, we weren't, we didn't immediately become like the super predator people. It took like a number, like I I think it was an extra like 50 to a hundred thousand years before we got to the point where we kind of like beat anything up where that's kind of like a weird thing that we're intelligent. I think it's like the point I'm trying to make is like, like, we're intelligent creatures, yet we're like really squishy, like what you were alluding to. Like we're not like the big, you know, we're not like a bear or like uh, any of these other animals that are like really, really powerful. We're kind of squishy creatures and our brains are what kind of separates us apart. Other than I think, um, I think we're long distance runners. I think like we, we can go really, really far. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like, other than like intelligence and like the ability to run really far, I don't, I don't know what other uh, species abilities we have over other creatures. Other than, yeah. Well, lots of creatures can run really far. Well, I think we can beat them. I think like that's our thing. Like we can, like we have like longevity. Like we could just keep going. I think, I think that's. Well, you, there, no, there are certain animals you can. You aren't going to win a race with. Trust me. No, I mean but, like, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, like in the short distance, they could outrun us. But like 
in the terms in terms of like if you just said go in a straight line and they would eventually get tired and we would like catch up to them i think that's what i'm trying to say yeah no, plenty of animals run for for long periods not okay. just human all right but um but the bushmen could the sand people could run down antelopes some of them some of the men could run an antelope down not not everybody did it but some did a few did did the sand people have a like a traditional this is like a very weird and esoteric question so i'm sorry if you don't know the answer but the um do they have a traditional seven-day calendar and then did they do things on uh certain days of the week or like oh no 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 there's no point in having a seven-day calendar Hmm. Uh, I'd like to go back for a minute about intelligence. Okay. Um, um, we consider ourselves the most intelligent things on the planet, but there are, we are speaking of our own body of knowledge and what it's for. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of most, most other birds, mammals, even, even, um, fish have, uh, are have plenty of intelligence and they have it was thought for a long time that animals didn't have consciousness well they have not only consciousness they have memory they have emotions they have um all all sorts of mental things that, that we do and the idea which perhaps is in that book um i i don't remember sapiens i guess it was um we're not as sapient as we think we are when we compare ourselves to other creatures, and this is just a fact, and it's and it's it, it finally, finally, the scientists figured out that animals do have have consciousness and awareness, and and uh, um, they learn things, educations, that etc., mm-hmm. just like we do. And why we thought that we were unique in that is amazing to me, because we evolved from other primates um, we evolved from just like everything else and lived a hundred thousand years as the sand lived and and to think that we're i mean uh, there's so much we don't know Mm -hmm. there is so much we don't know or unless you're a specialist and go and study something then you know that, that thing but we're really we we consider our knowledge the only important knowledge. That's our problem. Mm-hmm. I I agree. The um and you can kind of see it in our history as well. Like for the longest time, people thought like the Earth was the center of the universe, and it's like like every yeah, exactly. every century we needed like someone to like pop us in the face and, and be like, guys, you're, you're like everyone else. Like relax a little bit. You don't have to be the center of the universe to be special. Yeah, I agree. Like this century, I'm hoping it's gonna be really interesting, and in, and in that we we find a way to uh partner with nature versus just think that we have to have these man-made steel you know monoculture level developments like i think that there's more of a progression at least i know in my generation where people are more interested in learning about nature and more interested in and you know gardening and and learning about people um which is good because i don't i think it it probably always existed on like on, on some scale but i think it's really starting to step up to a point where like a huge segment a population is very deeply moved and and desiring to learn about uh, other animals and how they perceive things and, and it's a nice thing too that, that we're not like the only creatures with sapiens and the uh, ability to recognize that we're sentient because that would just be so so lonely to be the only animal but like you know uh, cephal- uh, octopus uh, cephalopods are that way i mean elephants yeah I mean, like elephants are, are crazy in how <laughs> 
how smart they are like is it is, isn't it true like they um they like almost never forget anything i don't know if that's like a maybe a myth or, or not but they like they have a really really good memories yeah well many animals have very good memories um i was today with a gentleman his name is his name is harry green and he studies snakes and he he was telling me about snakes and what they know and how they know it is is absolutely phenomenal and most of us don't have a clue with oh god that's a snake you know step on it and uh, um, i mean if if we if we could learn about even 10 percent of of what's around us we'd 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 know vastly more than we know now but we don't so we're gonna probably go extinct yeah. which is not a bad idea all in all and, and then i think there's um there's an over dependence on technology now where people just, if you go out to a oh, restaurant, yeah. like so many people just have their phones in their face. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you're going to, I like, I like green. Like I like oh, things being alive. Like if it's, if yeah. it's winter, I get kind of like sad and I like not as motivated to move around, but I'll like, that's why I have to like grow stuff. Cause I, I just love seeing things grow and move around. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good thing, but you, you, you commented earlier that um, that experience when you were young, it influences how you see stuff today. And so I'm curious. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. How do you, like, can you talk more about how you see things differently? I'd love to learn. Um, I don't know, I'd just love to hear how you view the world, I guess. Well, I see other mammals as creatures like myself, all of them. And I, I, uh, I noticed when I was there, for instance, the lions didn't hunt people. And that that's very that's kind of rare these days because lions do hunt people and man eaters and there's lots of lots and lots of man eater stories and people think of lions like that but the, the lions there didn't and the people didn't hunt the people the people didn't hunt any predators they only hunted antelopes and or whatever small small game um um and uh Hunting was for men only because it takes so much skill and so much strength, and also it's um, it's it, it it it's a profound thing within a person to be able to to do this. And women women have women have nothing to do with it because women have a different kind of power. A hunter can bring food. A woman can a woman can make another person. Mm-hmm. And the two different, the two powers are so different that the, the, the people didn't want to have them mix because it might weaken one, might weaken the other, or you know, not be not good for the other. So, so they, they, they. That was why they didn't. The women didn't hunt. But uh, that was just to. Uh, by the way, the the. Uh, the, the the thing about lions was they didn't hunt people because there was no surface water and everybody who needed to drink water needed to be have access to a water hole so every water hole had a a band of people a, a, a little group of people an encampment and there'd be about maybe 30 as i said or some maybe some more maybe not but around that size and there would be a group of lions, maybe eight, nine, something like that. Lionesses and a lion and cubs. 
and uh, the lions would the, the lions and the people hunted the same game. They hunted it in pretty much the same way. They were stealth hunters, and they the 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 the, the flight of an arrow when it's shot from a bow is about the same distance as a lion's charge. So they had to be about the same distance from their prey before they could do anything about it. And this, this, the, the, the thing is that the lions use the country, the same, the same area the lions used it at night and the people used it in the daytime. And the, the, I think that the fact that there was no surface water explains why the lions and the people didn't conflict with each other. And the, the, because if they did, if people started shooting the lions, the lions would know who was shooting them. And um, they they would either have to leave or they would, I mean, or they would be so, they would be fierce to the people. They, they, um, and, and the people would have to leave. Somebody would have to leave. And if the people left, they could go and live with, with relatives or other people at the other encampments, but too many people at an encampment challenges the food supply around that encampment. Mm -hmm. And for the lions, they, they would, they would f fight until the one, one group won. Then the other group would be, if they'd be wounded and they'd have to go live with, they'd have to go and live where there was no water or, or unless they could take a water source from somebody else. And if they had to live without water, without surface water, they would have uh, they would have the same kind of hard time that the that the group of San the Gui San who were driven from their water they would have the same problems as those people were having and it would be a difficult difficult time for them and they know that uh, lions are very knowledgeable they're not just creatures acting on instinct they have thoughts and they have they have culture so the culture of the lions in 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 Nyanyai, the culture was not to eat people or not to hunt people to the extent that one night we were we had been traveling and we were very tired we stopped and we didn't really make a camp or set up put up tents or anything like that we just put our sleeping bags on the ground and went to sleep and during the night the, we were in a different area the lions of, who owned that area would be interested to know who we were and what we were and a group of lions came during the night and looked at us and they looked right, they stood right next to us and looked down at our faces. And we found that out in the morning from their tracks. And I was very glad not to have woken up and looked into the nostrils of a lion. I don't know what I, how I would have felt about that. Um, but but they didn't they didn't hurt us and and many times lions would come to look at us in, in our camp. We camped we had a camp very near we had a camp right next to the to the sand encampment and lions would come two or three lions lionesses usually no sometimes a lion would come and they'd look at us and they would um, the people the men would 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 take uh, burning branches and shake them at the lions and but speak to them very respectfully to call somebody old was a, was a uh, was an honor it being old was honorable um and they would say old lions um this place is ours you you must you must go and the lions would go they would they would 
fuss around a little bit and you know think it over but they they would leave this always happened hmm. and uh, how different that was i that i thought i didn't know much about lions i had just come from basically first year of college or something and uh, when i was there and uh, i didn't know what and I, I, obviously the bushman sam knew everything there was to know about lions so i just did what they did um, my brother and I were once walking in the in the field, and we didn't have we didn't carry arms. The Bushmen didn't carry arms. They didn't carry spears or anything like that, um, unless they were hunting. Every, every, and the women went gathering, and I would go gathering with the women. We never had weapons. We just we just uh, just you know kept our eyes open. But that again, if you if you live in the natural world, you have to know what is going on around you all the time. And so we just paid attention. It's like driving. When you're driving, you have to pay attention to driving. And on the road, you can't be thinking about something else. Or you shouldn't be. You have to think about what's where you're going and stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the the uh, um, because I had gotten my education about lions from the sand, when I was with Katie Payne in Etosha, um, I was I went to get some equipment we'd left behind. I went in a van to get the equipment, and a lioness was sitting right on it, or right beside it. So I did what the Bushmen did. I got out and said, you know, oh, lioness, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but I have to take the, I have to get that equipment. Would you please move? And she charged me at the speed of light. And I was, I, the, oh, oh wait a minute, I'll tell that story in a minute. Before that, my brother and I were walking. With it. We didn't have weapons. We came around some bushes, and there was a young, a, a mature, I mean, he was a grown-up, but he was young, lion. And the, we, we just, he was 20 feet away. And we, we, just, we were just looking at him in awe. We were just speechless, stunned. And he was looking at us with some interest. The Bushman had told us that when, if you meet a lion, you should seem indifferent and walk away at an oblique angle. Do not turn and run because that will just get him excited and he'll chase you. So we, and also you show that you're afraid of him. So we, 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 we didn't, we should have done that, but we didn't do that. We just stood and stared and he, he looked at us as if he was indifferent and he walked away at an oblique angle. So that is what you do. Mm-hmm. We 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 saw that, and back to the lioness that charged me. Um, I jumped in the in the van, so I was okay. And she she had only been trying to scare me, uh, which she certainly did. And um, I mean, I think she pro- if I'd stayed there, I think she would have probably killed me, because the lions in Etosha were known for for being very dangerous, unlike the lions in uh, the in the in the Nyanya area. So, um, and they had a different culture. That the lions of the of of the lions of Etosha probably had the same culture. The hunter gatherers used to live in Etosha, but they were driven away because the park people didn't like to have hunter gatherers there. I guess so. They drove them away, and generations of lions would have passed without having any contact with humans except people in cars the tourists in cars 
and you're not supposed to get out of your car. Mm-hmm. And uh, they and they had no way to pass on their information about how to act with people. So they did. I mean, in other words, the lions in Nyanyai made an exception for people. They did not hunt people. The lions in Itosha didn't make an exception for people, and they did hunt people. So, it, I mean, that was an, a very interesting thing and mm-hmm. to be charged by this lioness and this lion. Yeah, lioness. So that, that was that was nice. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, <laughs> I'm here to tell the story. Yeah, a, a wake up call. But um, this is like a personal question for me. But the so for many years, I, I had this health issue. And it's kind of like made me scared to like go out and explore. It's not every every now and again when I travel, I can kind of tell it's there. But I want to oh, travel yeah. the world and get these these experiences and these perspective that similar to what you have. And so I'm curious, how would you? What suggestions would you have either for someone like myself or someone listening in who who wants to have that different not not just experience, but like to see the world in a different light? Like how can we go about doing that? Um, I know personally, like it's it's been a little hard, but at the same time, like I'm working to get over that and like go travel more. Uh, camping in the woods is a good thing. Or if if you can get involved with some other species, that's a good thing. And you can. Um, I mean, there are many ways to do it. Uh, but I, I, in my opinion, familiarity with the natural world is, it's a very different world from the world we know. And it's it's very informative once you get started. So I I would advise something like that. And then um, there's stuff around like be wary, uh, be knowledgeable about your your local environment because that is what you're saying. Like there yeah. could be some like camping opportunities or like nature around. I live in Austin, and there are some. Oh, uh, you, you do live yeah. in Austin. Oh, yeah. well, Austin is a wonderful place. My my daughter lives in Austin, and I visit her with great pleasure. Um, the bats in Austin. Bats? You could B-A-T-H-S? Bats, yeah. B-A-T-S, bats. Okay. You don't know about the bats? Oh, bats. I thought you said bats. It's like where you, where you wash yourself. Um, bats, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check them out this weekend. That's, a, that's oh, been on my you list. won't regret it. That is something to see. Yeah, here there's like millions and millions and millions of them. Like, it's, it, like it like almost like darkens the sick eye. I don't know. I just know there's a lot. I'm excited about it. Yes. Also, the the trees and the birds in Austin are are fabulously interesting. I know the the two. I, I, I've only been here for a couple of months, so I'm still just trying to like, you know, learn about all the places that are going on. And uh, I, I I get my exercise through exploring. So like, I walk a lot. So I've been trying to like explore the river the riverside. I, I I since I grew up on a farm, I've always been. Yeah. When I was younger, I would uh, kind of like take a census of my environment, and, like see how many like different types of birds there are and like how they're doing over the years. And, yeah. uh, and I, I, I guess I, I try to do that wherever I go to like, see like how the populations are doing and, um, and stuff like that. But I, 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 I definitely agree with you that like, just, um, sometimes I think there's, and even in my, my question, I think there was like this inherent, not like wrongness, but like an incorrect thinking that you have to go somewhere really, really far away to get these different perspectives. When in reality, that you, a lot of these opportunities are in your backyard, which I think is what you're saying. Like, yes, they, they are. Yes. Um, yeah, one of the things about the natural world is that many things that are very interesting happen rarely and quickly. And so the the thing to do is be very patient. And I mean, well, I I went to Baffin Island to, to, to observe a 
den of wolves, a group of two wolves and their children from last year were raising a litter of puppies. And you you just sit and watch and you wait. I waited. I watched one wolf for 18 hours without because it was daylight. It was always day, always daytime. And uh, so I could see her for 18 hours and uh, she didn't do anything. But that in itself is very interesting. She, I mean, it, it doesn't, it isn't exciting like being charged by a lion, but, but it, uh, I mean, it, it tells you something. It gives you a feeling of the place and a feeling of who you're looking at. But it takes, it, you have to have a whole different mindset. You have to be willing to watch something for 18 hours when, quote unquote, nothing is happening. Something is happening. Some, a wolf is sleeping for 18 hours. She woke up after nine hours. She didn't wake up, but she kind of woke up a little. And she she uh, just moved a little bit and then went back to sleep. She just shifted her position a little and went back to sleep. Hmm. So, but I mean, you know, that in itself is an important thing. I think if I were to like kind of craft a challenge for listeners, it would be to uh, put your kind of as best as you can, like put your put your, like, put your electronics away go somewhere where there's nature and just sit there for a while and, and yeah. find like pick something in your environment and try and keep, try and look at it yeah. and find yeah. new things about it. And uh, if, and as a test, like if you're, let's say you're looking at a bird and you think, Oh, I've seen everything about this bird, close your eyes and try and remake it in your head and then open your eyes again. If, if it's not completely one-to-one, then you know, there's more things that you haven't seen. Um, even if you're not the most creative person, like you can remember stuff. But I think that'd be a really, that's, good, yeah, that's very true. And the birds in Austin, uh, the, the doves, if you listen to them, you'll, you'll hear that they are, their calls are, have the, basically the same sound, but they have different rhythms and paces and slightly different sounds. That's talking. They're talking. That Those are words. So listen to that for a while. And, and they t- talk and, and answer. And you can hear conversations that they're doing once you know what they're doing. It's fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I wish you luck when you do that. I, you can't miss if you... Austin is a very good place. <laughs> and that was Elizabeth Thomas, amazing author. If you want to check out her work, go to ElizabethMarshallThomas, all one word, dot net. Check out all of her books. They're fantastic. I'll include some of them in the show notes as well for people who are just avid listeners or, and want to check them out. If you like this episode, definitely check out Cy Montgomery's episode and Brenda Peterson's episode. I think they're kind of the same family of loving nature and getting a lot of uh, interesting insights into things that if you're not, if like you're living in a city or something like that, maybe you wouldn't normally get exposed to. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell this year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.